Good morning. Last week, Toby talked about disappointment with people, with events, with outcomes, with ourselves and with God himself, and how to address it. In a similarly cheerful vein, I want to talk this morning about cynicism, what it is, how it works, and whether it has a valid place in Christian thinking and living. My perception, I'm sure I'm not alone, is that cynicism is on the increase in our response to politics and politicians, for example. And it's on the increase in the church, too. I believe this is in part a direct result of unaddressed disappointment, and we'll come back to that. But interestingly, FYI, down with the kids, Toby and I came independently to the subjects that we felt we should talk about over these next two weeks, what my husband calls a God incidence. He's good like that. God. First, the essential... Order. I so want to be in the Houses of Parliament as the speaker. First, the essential essential dictionary definition. In the Oxford English Dictionary, a cynic is described as one who sarcastically doubts or despises human sincerity or merit. The adjective cynical is applied to someone who is distrustful or incredulous of human goodness and sincerity, someone who is skeptical and mocking. How very attractive. Don't you just long to hang out with people like that? So perhaps in this first minute or so, I've already answered the question as to the validity of cynicism for the professing Christian, and we can all pack up and get on with the serious business of drinking coffee. Or... We consider the whole issue at greater length, which is my preferred option. When I was young, cynicism was cool. It was the hallmark of wisdom and was proof of a level of sophistication and understanding of the world which was wholly lacking in those of a more trusting, we prefer to call it naive, disposition. People's shortcomings and foibles were fair game for mockery. Oh, and by the way, We were Christians. On one particular occasion, a group of us were having a side-splittingly amusing time at the expense of a Christian woman we all knew who was, frankly, a horrible person. She was unfailingly critical, unfailingly vindictive. She once commented to a friend of ours who suffered from bad acne, Oh my goodness, you have such bad skin. What soap do you use? See what I mean? She deserved it, right? We were all falling about laughing at our own rapier-like wit when we were called to order by a wonderful woman called Annie Roper. And this is how she did it. Oh, now. Annie was from Gaffney, South Carolina, and only Kimberly is fully aware of how execrable my accent actually is. (laughs) Oh, now. We all know that the Lord loves Jennifer, don't we? Well, that shut us up. Let me tell you about Annie Roper. She's now 91 years old and has loved Jesus all her life. She is unfailingly kind and warm, and she is also very direct. If you asked her, for example, if she was free at a given time, her response would be, why do you ask, honey? So you'd tell her, and then she'd say, oh, honey, I'll take a rain check on that, but thank you so much for thinking of me. In other words, I'll pass, thanks. No explanation, just a very sweetly expressed no. She is both straight-talking and unfailingly gracious. 
She and her wonderful husband, Don, who died some years ago, had a uniquely positive influence on Toby and me and on many of our friends. Their legacy to us is incalculable. I want to be like Annie when I grow up, able to correct with grace and without judgment and to love regardless. Everybody needs an Annie and we need to learn how to become Annie's. So when I was younger, to be a cynical Christian was to be a cool Christian. I no longer think cynicism is cool. I think it's a sin. But I also believe it is still a problem in the church at large. I'm indebted to an American academic who teaches at Durham University, Dr. Andrew Byers, for an essay he has written on this, some of which I found very helpful. Dr. Byers maintains that Christian, in inverted commas, cynicism, is more often directed at the church than at God himself. Cynicism, he maintains, is becoming in vogue in many Christian circles as a trademark of a new spirituality, the edgy spirituality of the jaded. Not all of us are jaded, and by no means all of us are hardened cynics, but I do believe that most of us can give way to a measure of cynicism some of the time, often when we've experienced disappointment, tragedy, frustration, broken relationships, meanness, humiliation, or betrayal, especially at the hands of other Christians. Dr. Byers describes the church as a dysfunctional family of sinful siblings repeatedly failing and injuring one another. Welcome to my club. It is cynicism which can lead us to generalize from the specific. I was badly hurt by a Christian woman in that particular church. Therefore, anybody who goes to that particular church is tarred with the same brush and is probably like her. Christians are so judgmental. Christians are so insensitive. If we applied these same criteria to someone of a different race or a different faith, we'd be instantly and rightly ostracized. We let ourselves off the hook because we're part of the clan and therefore entitled to make sweeping statements. We're enlightened Christians. We see things as they are. Only, of course, we're not enlightened Christians who see things as they are. We're hurt and disappointed Christians whose failure to resolve these hurts and disappointments leave us standing on the sidelines, carping, finding fault, licking our wounds in preference to allowing Jesus to heal them. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. You would too, the song goes on, if it happened to you. We are Christians who mistake cynicism for clear-sightedness, when in reality, it's absolutely nothing of the kind. Going back to the edgy spirituality of the jaded, Andrew Byers describes this spirituality as being of those whose spiritual wounds have become infected when brokenness has soured to bitterness. Very often, cynicism has its roots in profound and understandable pain. But there is, of course, an answer, and it comes in the person of Jesus. Our cynicism, along with our hurt and our pain, can be redeemed. In a recent edition of the Evangelical Alliance magazine, I came across an article written by the general director of the Evangelical Alliance, Steve Clifford, entitled The Battle Against Cynicism. He was talking about the ever-increasing cynicism about politics and politicians. All polit politicians are in it for themselves, corrupt at worst and self-serving at best. They're all the same, so it doesn't make any difference who I vote for. The party I vote for hasn't a hope in this constituency, so what's the point? 
Steve Clifford writes this. A friend of mine once described worry as unsanctified prayer. It's something I loved and uh, open to discussion, I'm sure. Perhaps cynicism is unsanctified prophecy. It's a cancer that pervades British society and is sadly impacting the church. A cynic knows everything while believing in nothing. With cynicism, there is little place for commitment, celebration, or indeed joy. Cynics become judge and jury of every situation, like oil and water, cynicism and hope, just don't mix. There may be some of us here this morning wondering why this is relevant to us. Some of us may well never have succumbed to cynicism, and if that is you, that is totally commendable, and as it should be. A want of cynicism is not a want of either understanding or discernment, nor is it a sign of somebody steeped in unreality and false optimism, whatever the cynic will tell you to the contrary. But many of us do feel cynicism or a measure of cynicism at some time or another. Some of us have experienced profound pain and loss in our lives. The lack of or slowness of the healing process, which can often take a very long time, can lead us to lose hope temporary, temporarily or sadly, sometimes permanently. I don't believe anyone is born cynical and I don't believe cynical people are inherently bad people. But cynics are damaged people. And damaged people can cause damage, usually inadvertently, but sometimes deliberately. In articles I've read, and I have to agree, cynicism is referred to as an illness and a cancer. And there's nothing remotely cool about cancer. We have to address this as Christians. So how? I want first to talk to the cynics amongst us. You don't have to put your hand up, or the cynically inclined. And then to the non-cynics. We all have an essential part to play. Firstly, we cynics need to understand that the so-called spirituality of the jaded is neither edgy nor cool, and we do not have the monopoly on wisdom and insight by any means that we may think we do. Cynicism is condescending and misguided, and it is directly opposed to the hope that we have in Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Worst of all, it puts us firmly in the camp of the accuser of the brethren. To quote Toby's favorite saint, Saint Bob of Dylan, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's easy to forget that. I wonder sometimes if there isn't a common misapprehension amongst Christians that having accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, we assume we serve him by definition, automatically. But we don't, cynic or non-cynic. It is perfectly possible to be a Christian and to fail to serve God in any notable way. Those of us who do harbor cynicism in our hearts are rendered incapable of extending God's kingdom and serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We cannot simultaneously poke holes in something and build it up. So the first thing the Christian cynic must do is to look at her cynicism and see it for what it is a sin and a sickness. Secondly, she needs to reject it, turn away from it, and leave it at the foot of the cross. She needs to repent, in other words. 
Preparing for this, I was really struck by a verse in John's gospel in chapter five, which is where Jesus is at the pool called Bethesda and comes across a man lying beside it who has been an invalid for 38 years, as you may remember. In verse six, Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? On the face of it, this seems a very strange question. But the longer I'm around, the more I see it as a very insightful question. Just as some of us can embrace our cynicism and allow it to be our trademark, so equally we can sometimes embrace our pain, our hurt feelings, our sickness and our weakness, and allow those things to define who we are. They have become integral to our personality. It's as if we've embraced a barbed wire teddy since childhood and are too familiar with it to want to replace it with a proper teddy, something we can cuddle without doing damage to ourselves. Cynicism may not be your barbed wire teddy. It may be something else. Guilt, shame, feelings of inferiority, self-pity, anger. All of these do not sit well with Jesus. Let's hand them over and allow the comforter Jesus to give us something which actually comforts rather than something which is designed to damage us. Thirdly, we need to acknowledge the necessity of community. Cynical people undermine and undervalue community. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. These verses go to the heart of why we need, as Christians, to be in community and why we need to belong to a body of believers. More than that, why we need to come to church. The church, the body of Christ, is God's idea. In church, we deliberately and consciously put ourselves in the way of healing through participating in restorative God-focused worship, through listening to hopefully Christ-centered teaching, and through spirit-led prayer. Last Sunday, I was in some danger of being hardened by sin's deceitfulness, as the Hebrew verse says. I was having a little wallow, as you do. I was choosing to believe something about myself which was not true, and which the Lord had in the past pointed out to me was not true. I had at least sufficient self-awareness to put myself in the place of being prayed for, of allowing another Christian to encourage me and encourage me, she surely did. She prayed for me and then affirmed that what I was in danger of believing about myself was never something God would ever say to a beloved child. God challenges us, disciplines us, and convicts us, but he never crushes us. That's the devil's job, and he's very good at it. Last Sunday, I put myself in the way of allowing God through a sister in Christ gently to restore me to right thinking. And this can only happen in community. Two of the enemy's greatest weapons are isolation and the cult of individuality, both often espoused by the cynic. I have the Lord. I have a hotline to God. I don't need fellowship. God and I, we're like this. We're that close. Well, yes, we do have a direct line to the Lord through Jesus. That's absolutely true. But sometimes there's static on it and we can't hear very clearly. And sometimes there's so much static 
that we can't hear at all. Of course God can heal us directly and without input from others. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. But that's up to him, not us. And if we choose isolation, if we choose the Frank Sinatra way and do it our way, he may choose to allow us our space and isolation and leave us alone, much as a parent might leave a child to sulk a little and get over itself. Because he may want to deal us through the community that we spurn. By the way, I'm not talking about the Christian who chooses to go on retreat for a week or two. Or those of us who daily seek to spend some time exclusively with the Lord, reading the Bible, praying and seeking his face. Jesus did all of that. This is not a question of taking a stand against solitude, but for community. So the cynic needs to see his cynicism for what it is, a sickness. He needs to turn away from it and he needs to acknowledge that God usually works through community. Fourthly, the cynics need to see that, as Steve Clifford says, cynicism and hope just don't mix because hope is the bedrock of the Christian faith. A few years back, I spoke of biblical hope and how it differs from what we usually mean when we talk about hope. In the Bible, there is a strong sense of expectancy when the writers speak of hope. In Romans 8, verses 23 and 24, reading from the J.B. Phillips translation, Paul says, It is plain to anyone with eyes to see that at the present time, all created life groans in a sort of universal travail. Nothing new there then. He goes on, and it is plain too that we who have a foretaste of the spirit are in a state of painful tension while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, which will mean that we have realized our full sonship in him. We were saved by this hope. And let us remember that hope always means waiting for something that we do not yet see. For whoever hopes for what he can see. But if we hope for what we cannot see, then we must settle down and wait for it in patience. In true vineyard tradition, this illustrates brilliantly the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Christians are saved now. But our full sonship, the redemption of our bodies, is not yet. We still have to wait for that. But because we know, beyond doubt, those of us who have committed our lives to the Lord, that we have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, we wait in sure and certain hope, as is written in the Book of Common Prayer. In other words, we can be expectant and know we will not be disappointed. That is not arrogance. That's what biblical hope is. It's not our rueful sort of hope, which allows for the possibility that something we hope for may not happen, that we may be disappointed. We have said yes to God. He will never say maybe to us. I think the description of painful tension while we wait for the not yet to happen is really helpful. We are still part of a fallen, sinful, wayward world where stuff happens and a lot of it is horrible. But, as is clear in Revelation 21, a dwelling place awaits us where God will be with us. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, our now, will have passed away. The not yet will have come. This is our hope. And to hold fast to it leaves no room whatsoever for cynicism. 
If we shrug and say, yeah, whatever, we are really throwing our hope and salvation back in God's face and giving the green light to God's enemy and ours to dance on the tables. Job done, at our expense and with our tacit agreement. I don't believe that's what any of us really wants. And fifthly, we reformed cynics must refuse point blank ever to abandon hope. As you may know, the oft-quoted line, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, comes not from the Bible, but from the 14th century Italian poet Dante in the first book, The Inferno, of his immensely long poem, The Divine Comedy. I have not read it, but that is a line with which I refuse to concur with the greatest respect to one of our greatest European writers. Jesus is our hope. As a Christian, and to quote Steve Clifford again, I am required to dig deeper. I cannot give way to cynicism as I'm called to engage and particularly to pray. It's hard to pray with conviction if I'm cynical. It's up to us to guard our hearts, not God. So all the patient non-cynics, what of us? Well, just as some of the things we've talked about above don't apply, sorry, don't only apply to the cynics amongst us, but to all who sin and fall short, that's all of us, so much of what the non-cynic must do also applies to all of us. Those of us who have refused to bow the knee to cynicism are, first of all, a reminder. We are the maybe-not factor We are proof, or should be, that not all Christians are mean-minded, insensitive, judgmental, naive, and hypocritical. All that definitely holds its own challenges, I'm sure we can all agree. How do we behave when faced with people who are cynical, relentlessly negative, or simply unpleasant? Is my first reaction in the Annie Roper school of thinking, which is under no illusions about the person, but acknowledges that whoever they are, God loves, loves them quite as much, as he does us, have we practiced that response sufficiently often for grace to become innate in us? The second thing for the non-cynic to realize is that even if cynicism is not our particular vice, chances are we have another one for which we too will sometimes need some grace extended to us by other people. So we need to be gracious. This is not an exercise in there, there. I've said this before and it merits saying again, some of the toughest things which have been said to me have been said with great grace and compassion and have changed my life. Believe me, there was nothing soothing or there, there-ish about them. It took courage on the part of the giver and humility, lots of it, on the part of the hearer. In fact, delivery, how we speak to one another, is so important. We can render what we say much more palatable if we think about how we say it, and most importantly, perhaps, how we would feel if we were on the receiving end of it. And thirdly, let us be the restorers of hope. The world needs what we have. The world needs Jesus, and we need one another to pray, to support, to encourage, and to travel alongside The great privilege of community is to give as well as to receive. One final thing. Some of us have become cynical about the church because we have seen things which do, in fact, need to be addressed. In attempting to do so, 
we have been either ignored, sometimes ostracized, and our motives have been questioned. It is horribly easy when we have been on the receiving end of distrust like this to become cynical. As I mentioned earlier, earlier, many cynical people are first and foremost people whose wounds haven't even been cleaned or dressed properly, much less healed. In his article, Andrew Byers asks if we can be discerning Christians without being full-blown cynics. Is there a way to critique and challenge the church more out of love than out of anger? Well, yes, as I hope we've seen, there is. Unredeemed cynics will hurt more than help. Redeemed cynics, he goes on, have much to offer. He coins a phrase, hopeful realism, which he attributes with great integrity, I thought, to his wife. Hopeful realism is what all of us need to aspire to, not only the cynically inclined. There is sometimes an equal and opposite ill to cynicism in the church, the problem of unreality. This is a sort of relentless and mindless optimism, an inability to acknowledge sadness, grief, pain, or difficulty of any kind, because to do so is perceived to fly in the face of the grace and all sufficiency of Jesus. It's all good. God is in heaven and all is right with the world. But that's patently not true. We live in a fallen world. It's a beautiful world in many ways, and in the midst of all the horror of war, refugees, people trafficking, and the sexual exploitation of children, there is much selflessness, goodness, and kindness. But we're back to the now and not yet. Our sure and certain hope is that one day, this world of ours will indeed be redeemed and restored to what God originally intended. But for now, we have to hold on to the promise that is yet to come and to do what we can about bringing it and building the kingdom of God to the best of our limited abilities. Let us be hopeful realists, able to see things for what they are, but knowing that what we see now is not the whole story. And let's allow God to work in us, as Philippians 2 verse 13 tells us, so that what we want and what we do will achieve his ends over our own. We're never alone. Shall we stand and I'll pray. <clears throat> Father God, you are our Lord. Help us to be obedient. You are our Redeemer. We can never repay your generosity and grace to us. You are our King. We acknowledge your rule and reign in the whole of our lives. Father God, you are our saviour. Without you, we are lost. You are our protector, our strength, and our shield. You are our friend. You will never leave us or forsake us. Abba, Father, we are your children, and you love us unconditionally. Thank you. For Jesus. Amen. Amen.